Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world... Before the law was given, but sin, it, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose, sin, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the tres- now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a theological reading. But as we say, thanks be to God for his word. I, uh, I'm going to preach at Bethel Church right after this. I always feel like on the Sundays when that happens, if I had like a microphone you hold in your hand, it feels like because I preach and then I walk out the back door and I go find my car that Jen has parked somewhere out there and off I go. Their service starts at 1130 and uh, the speaker's supposed to be up around noon or so, so I'm like uh, driving down. So anyway, it's not, uh, uh, I I was going to say, it's not that you've offended me. Maybe maybe you have, maybe you'll offend me with like a glare or something while I'm preaching, but that's probably not why I'm uh, I'm leaving early and uh, and won't be able to greet you and and say goodbye um, at the end of the service. Spring forward, welcome. What time is it now? It's 11.30 almost, so uh, when will people... People should be arriving in 10 minutes or so. (laughs) So be kind to them if they do. How about this? This, I I would say this to the people who aren't here, so you have to cast yourself in a different role. Oh, man, spring forward. One of the worst days of the year. Because I lose an hour's sleep and I already don't get enough sleep. 
And there's so much to do. And my work, oh, my work is getting me down. I've talked to a number of people, teachers and others, who say, thank God for spring break. I work. Or my health. So if you're a teacher and you, you have spring break coming up, this is maybe a great day. That would mean in two weeks, I guess, it's not such a great day. You can do that with any, any day. So this is, it's sunny out there, but I'm tired and not feeling it. It's a tough day today. Or you can say, oh man, isn't, the best, isn't this the best day? Now there's more of you here because you're here right now. You managed to get up or you didn't sleep or whatever it is. Isn't this the best day? It's springtime. It feels like spring out there. It did yesterday when I was out for a bike ride. Kim and I out, out for a bike ride. Spring forward. It's the very name. It's just a beautiful term, isn't it? Spring forward. This is the best of all days. Is it all about perspective? The same world, the same day? Is it just two different ways of looking at it? We're going to look at the text that Keith read for us, and there's going to be two worlds presented. But in this case, in the book of Romans, it's not just two different perspectives on the same thing. It's two entirely different things, two entirely different worlds. But at the same time, we're being told, you need to see that this is not the world in which you live or need to live, but you live in this world, which is, and it's great, and you need to read the scriptures and you need to be caught up in the words and the language. This world, the world of sin and death, is one particular way. Oh, man. Or this world, the world of grace and life, has one, dis- one term that describes it over and over again. How much more? How? I mean, that's theological reading, and you try to wrap your mind around it as it's read. But you need to understand, if you want to hear what I'm about to say to you, you need to carry these words with you. How much more? And more is not just quantity. How much better is this world in which we live? Where we have been in this study of Romans, the Christian gospel, we did the introduction, of course, in chapter 1, and then the second half of chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 2, we took up this concept of the wrath of God, what happens when humanity turns away from God and tries to find life in things that are not ultimately life-giving. It's not the wrath of an angry God who can't wait to get you. Some of us were at the Tasting Room uh, Theology event on Wednesday night, and our speaker uh, at that event mentioned it's bad theology to cast Jesus as if Jesus is totally opposed to God, like they're two different characters. Like, if it wasn't for Jesus, God would just get us. Jesus said, if you want to know the Father, you know me. We talked about the wrath of God being not the punishment of some angry God, but if you turn away from the life-giving, eternal God of all creation and try to find that life in other things or in self, ultimately it leads to nothingness. That's a description of the wrath of God. In chapter 3, verse 21, everything turns. We said it could be the vision statement. I mean, vision and mission statements and all the corporate things that we take up in the church, right? Here's our five points of what we're about or whatever. The, the one, I would argue that it's possible that a great vision statement could just be, but now. Chapter 3, verse 21. This is the way that it works in the world of sin and death, the wrath of God. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed. 
And then chapter 4 we looked at, which is outlining how Abraham, the father of the Jews, the father of faith, Abraham himself had this faith. He didn't earn his righteousness. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the writer of Romans is saying, even all the way back to Abraham, when he counts David in that same chapter, and he says, these, these guys knew what faith was. There's no division between the old and the new. No, no um, argument. And then last week, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, it reaches, remember we had that, the graphic of the steps, and it goes up and up and up and up. 321 should be right at the top. I mean, that is over everything. But the text keeps going up and up and says, okay, now that a righteousness from God has been revealed, and we understand that this is the way it's always been, this isn't a new thing, then here's who we are in Christ. Six assertions of who we are. And it's hard to understand Christian identity with the pronoun I. I am this, or I do this, or I like this. That's the way of our world right now. I mean, it just is everywhere. Here's the 12 things that I like. Here's the I, 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 I. We each have, I mean, people can have their own accounts, Twitter accounts, and this and that, and the next thing. My voice, my I, 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 I. The, the assertion here is, while there is such a concept of individual faith, your identity is only properly understood in, with, the, with the pronoun we. Here's who we are in Christ. It's why I can't preach without people here. It's not the same thing. Have you ever, I mean, listen to recorded sermons. Sometimes they can, they can be fantastic. I listen to Tim Keller and others' sermons. But when you're there, totally different thing. We are this in Christ. So today... From that new creation, here's who we are in Jesus Christ. And the beauty of that in a place like this is that it doesn't have to be with groups that are the same as you. The same age, the same interests, the same political affiliation. Our common identity is in Christ Jesus. So one of the best things that can happen, hear this. It can be about musical style, it can be about politics, it can be about perspective on I don't know, whatever, sports teams, whatever. One of the best things that can happen is when you and I disagree or see things differently and still claim this common faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. What a blessing that we're not all the same in this room, that this isn't a meeting of everybody within a five-year demographic. This is who we are in Christ. So today, we go from new creation, individuals made new into this body. Here's who we are Paul takes it up even another notch and says, now let me describe the new world to you. And new doesn't mean it exists now, it didn't used to exist. There is, this is the hard kind of stuff to understand philosophically, theologically. But new, in a sense, it's a new creation, a new life, but this is the way that it's always been in Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. But it always is new, always unprecedented, and always good. That's Remember, that's how we describe the gospel. Always new, always unprecedented, and always good. So he'll describe the new world. He does so, and I hope not to offend you too much with this, on the first day of spring break, or the second, or the third, or whatever it is. There are now three Sundays in spring break. Anyway, I won't talk about that. Um, I, I hope not to offend you, because uh, Paul takes this up with a bit of a... Uh, schooling. He says, now let me give you a lesson. You're going to have a little bit of an English lesson here, and you're going to have a bit of of a math lesson, but it's Todd kind of math because it doesn't add up properly. 
right? So first he's going to say, we're going to do some comparing and contrasting. Have you ever had to write that essay? Compare and contrast these two. Well, how could those possibly be different? And, you know, the teacher writes, the prof sends back, you compared, but you didn't contrast. I don't know what that means. But anyway, he's going to compare and contrast. And then later on, he's going to lay out this kind of equation of how the world works in sin and death in Adam and how the world works with Jesus. But the, the, this new world is so great that it blows the concept of math right away, which in our world nothing does, right? So here's the outline of the text. Three paragraphs, verses 12 to 14. Adam and Christ are introduced. I don't mean to one another, I mean to us. Adam and Christ are introduced in terms of the thought and the argument that Paul is going to make. And the main way of contrast now is going to be presented. What, what is going to be stated in this text is Adam or you, by the way, because you read the beginning of the text, right? You heard Keith read it. Adam sinned and sin came into the world and all were affected by that. But then it mentions as well there, but all sinned. So is it just because Adam sinned that sin comes in, or is it because we've all sinned? And the answer is both. So Adam is like this, comes the introduction. And then it said, Jesus is not like that. Comes the contrast. Adam is responsible for sin and death. Adam being the first human, Adam being all humans. And we'll see that the two worlds are presented. The world of sin and death and the world of grace and life. That's the first paragraph. The second Verses 15 to 17 is the deeper contrast. Here's the, the, the uh, clarion call of verses 15 to 17. Jesus is not like Adam. That's why it's compare and contrast. Here's the way in which Jesus is like Adam, sometimes referred to as the second Adam. But here's the ways in which Jesus is, here's the contrast, not at all like Adam. And then the term comes out much more so. It was already present in the first part of chapter 5, but now it's going to be repeated over and over again. Jesus is not like Adam. How much more then? Will grace abound? How much more will we know life? If death came through Adam, how much more will life come through Christ? And finally, the third paragraph, verses 18 to 21, and this is where the math comes in. So you ready for this? Uh, I can get this kind of math I struggle with. I always, when I was going to university, um, grad school was different for me because by then I was studying theology and there's not a lot of uh, math in theology. Um, but I always struggled with multiple choice tests. I would rather write an essay and because I, I always struggled with, oh, there's one right answer. I don't, I mean, you, you know me by now, many of you. Um, and so this kind of math I like because the idea here is, okay, I'm going to, explain to you how Adam sinned and because of the sin came judgment or separation. Now Jesus is present before the creation of the world but in Jesus he doesn't sin. He brings grace and life, sacrifice, salvation and here's how the math works out. So Adam sins and just through one comes sin into the world that affects all but then everybody sins. So also, through obedience, many will be made righteous. And the math doesn't work out. The math doesn't work out because, and I'll, get, I'll restate this in a few minutes, but you would think that one, if one sin brings separation, then many sins will bring much more separation. But here's how it works. One sin brings separation, and many sins, God 
responds, but remember, Jesus exists before the creation of the world. Many sins, but now we have Jesus Christ slain for the salvation of the world. And so in that way, from many sins, Jesus Christ brings not death and more judgment, but life. You can't work it out on a math level. I mean, I suppose you could because Jesus is a different, you know, he's not A, X instead of A. So these two worlds. The key here is, or a key thought, I'm going to say the key like ten times. You, you decide what the key is. It is important to understand that in this presentation, it is, and we have trouble with this because we live in the, in the world of like the finite, where death reigns. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But the key is to understand, or an important thing is to understand, that the world of sin and death is in this description, the unreal world. The real world, the world of eternal life, is the world of grace and life in Jesus Christ. So if you choose to live in the world of sin and death and say, well, this is the reality, this is the way things are, you are choosing a less than real reality. Another way to put it is, you cannot, I love this concept, because often we start with sin and say, everybody was bad, then Jesus had to come, he took our sins onto him, now we can kind of walk across this Jesus bridge and get to God. That's a simplistic thing, there's some truth in it, but be careful thinking that it's the whole truth. Because what it does is it starts with sin. But the only way, and many good theologians, the best theologians will say, you cannot properly understand sin without first knowing this world. The love of Jesus Christ, the character of God. So the two worlds. Adam, back to the Garden of Eden. And so I'll throw out this question, and anytime you do this, there, <laughs> there are people who always say, oh, I hadn't thought of that, oh no, like it shakes their faith. And there's other people who say, yeah, I've always, I've thought that for a long time. I'm glad you at least acknowledged it. The Garden of Eden, Adam. Is there one Adam? Like, was there an actual Adam and an actual Eve and they were the only two? I mean, I think yes. But I hear arguments from people, even theologians and others who say, well, that language is at least describing something that's prehistory. So, so I don't know. I, I, in my faith, I always think of it that way. One Adam, one Eve, this is the way things are. I, but I know other Christians who don't think of it that way. Who think, well, clearly the, the six days is something, you know, is, is prehistory and told in a different way that can reach our understanding. And this, I don't know. I tend to think when I, when I pray, when I, I think of Adam and Eve in the garden. But this text is not primarily addressing that question. It's not trying to argue to you or to me, you know, here's the actual pure description scientifically of what happened uh, at and before the creation of humanity. It's trying to say this. Adam, the first human, sinned. This is representative as well, so there's an Adam, but it's representative of the sin and the fall of the human race. This is the world in humanity, in Adam. These two concepts and these two realities. That's why the first and the biggest is this. And, I mean, we don't like this word and we're scared by it and everything else. The first and biggest reality is the reality of death. 
Death is, now I'm going to say this, and it's true, and no matter how much you argue with it, I will vehemently disagree with you. Okay? Death is the supreme law of the world in which we live. It's over everything. We live in a death-obsessed, but a death-denying culture. I shouldn't have to describe that to you. You can just think of popular media, anything else. Obsessed with death, but denying death at the same time. Which shows this, like anything else in your life, if you were thinking of it, we don't have a handle on death at this point, culturally. We're not very good with it. It's a dark cloud that enshrouds everything and the whole of our life. And that's the world of Adam, sin. Consider how we treat death in our culture. We avoid thinking of it. We become terrified of it. We want to take control over it. We've heard that recently in our own country. One of the biggest threats to people would be that they would have to suffer any longer than they feel they have to. I'm going to take charge of everything in my life, including my death, which, as you know, can't happen. Suppose you could if you, you know, somebody who, who's suicidal or something may think that. But for most of us, we can't take control of our death. That's why as a minister, and I'm careful to say this because some of you have probably done this and others of you will. Come to me, a loved one has died, and say, we'll meet in my office and, and you'll say, well, we just want this to be a what? Celebration of life. Even when someone has died, we deny death. We don't want to talk about death. Because that's what? That's a downer. So let's just talk about life. The trouble is, reality hits you. You come and meet with me in my office because someone you love has died. And what's the biggest reality that you're facing? Someone you love has died. And it's not a helpful friendly minister who says, okay, well, let's not talk about the dying then. You see this. So I'm into celebration of life, but I always counsel people and say that one of the purposes of the service is to celebrate the life, but we have to mourn the death. And here's, here's why. We owe it to the person who's died. I believe that we also owe it spiritually in terms of God and, and this world. But also, you will not be able to move on in your life if you don't acknowledge the death and the loss. And you won't be able to confront your own mortality, which the people who are most free in this life are able to confront their own mortality. Lionsgate Hospice, or Lionsgate Hospital, or the hospice right in the same area. Have you before been with a person in their last moments? It can be terribly difficult. It can be quite... um, I was going to say violent, but almost like that. So it, it, it's, it's difficult to die at times. And sometimes people just peacefully die. I've, as a minister, and I count this as a great privilege. I never want it, but it's always a great privilege. I have been with people in this congregation who used to sit right here. And I've been with them in their final moments, some. When they, when they go from life and face death. And I'll tell you right now that it's in facing it that you begin to be able 
to understand real life. And you lose some of that fear. I'm an on-call chaplain at the hospital, as many of you know. And there's times when I'm called in. I can think of times in the last number of months. I'm called in because someone is dying, or in some cases, the one I'm thinking of right now is someone has died and the family is gathered around the hospital or the hospice bed, and they've called the minister, the chaplain, to come in and say a prayer. And at times, it depends on the family, right, because all families are different. Some are really huggy and tactile, and it's always just they're always, you know, all over each other, and others are very subdued and staid. And there's been occasions where I walk into the room and I realize, and I have to measure this culturally because it's different in different cultures, but uh, in, in some cases I realize they're standing here, their loved one has died, they're lying there, and nobody here has yet, it appears, touched them. And so one of the things that I'll do is I'll walk up and I'll just touch their forehead. And I'll just say a quick, brief prayer. And then you can see the room change. It's almost like permission. We're so afraid of death that we just hold ourselves back and hold ourselves back. We want to do everything in our power to ignore the power that death seems to have. But, and this is the text, the divine command of death remains the same. Stop. All those plans you have, they'll end. All the things you're struggling with right now. It's why the term swallowed up, like death swallows up everything. But then the scripture turns around and says that death is swallowed up by the victory of Jesus Christ. Death may be the reality that we most feel, but in this text, death comes from somewhere. In other words, why is it that this is the way that it is in the world? This text says clearly, because I've done it in, in reverse order. I've done the second thing first, death, because death is the biggest reality that we feel. But this text says, sin came into the world through humanity, Adam turning his back on God, and with sin came death. Death as we know it. Death that reigns over human history. The sin of Adam and each person, the sin of claiming sovereign power and saying, no, I, well, I don't believe in God or whatever, or more, more likely, my life doesn't come from you. My life comes from me and something or someone else. And so it's me claiming sovereign power, standing alone as an I or alone as we. Sin is a robbing of God. It is, and I love the terms, read it in a commentary this week. This is the madness of the devil in the garden who says, you shall be like God. And with that comes death as we know it. Us thinking that it's a good thing to throw off the shackles of some God. Now I'll do a little proviso, side note here and say, if your view of God is a God who is against you, out to dominate, out to get you, sometimes the way that religious circles can run, Christian and otherwise, like watch out for God because he really can't stand you, if that's your view of God, then by all means throw off the shackles. And my view historically is that that's what's happened. That, you know, even, even historically in terms of the Enlightenment and shaking off some really, really difficult religious ways of thinking, right? We have turned instead to self. 
But there's a call now to say, hang on a second, we realize that life doesn't come from self. But to understand that God is not a God who is out to get you, but a God of love, now we can turn back in Jesus Christ. So just if you try this and think of, and think of how this works out. I just put it before you, whether you're successful or not in the eyes of this world, which, by the way, is one of the funniest jokes around. You know, this person's successful, that person's not. We'll just go through the room here and go, okay, so-and-so, successful, clearly. So-and-so, not so successful. And really what we should all be doing there is laughing. It's ridiculous. Do you know that it's... I mean, there are other places in this, but the Christian church is one of the most influential in history that said, and it's the reason that you guys are sitting here together, mixed like this, because the Christian church from Scripture, early days, said, everyone together, the rich, the poor, right? Different backgrounds, different social status. You come together because all of that definition of who's successful and who's not, who's good and who's not, it's out the window because our life is in Jesus Christ. Still, many places in the world don't believe this at all. Don't believe that people are equal like that. So, I'll say, whether you think you're successful or not, let's try it. Try to look for ultimate meaning in your career. Go for it. Your work. So, let's map that out a little bit. You do that, and then you don't get the job that you thought you deserved. Now, what happens? Or you do that and you get the job you think that you deserve. But then you're working there for a while and you realize, I, this doesn't answer all my questions at all. Or you retire. Now where's your meaning? Look for meaning. How about this then? Well, yes, but I have a successful career and then I retired. So my meaning is in my reputation. It's the kind of person that I am. Look for ultimate meaning there and see what happens. Here's what happens. Guarantee. If you look for meaning in your reputation, I can guarantee you one act that you will do. You will lie. You have to. You have to pretend who you are to me and to other people. Because at all costs, you protect your reputation. If you look for ultimate meaning there. Or in romance. Or in family. This is one that has gotten into the church where we elevate family to the status of God. It's not scriptural. But if you look for ultimate meaning in your family, you will ultimately, and this is freedom to some people, you will ultimately be disappointed. Praise God. I sometimes, I pick on these things, but they bother me. Mutual fund ads. And this time of year, they were out big time. And they always have a slogan like this. You are unique. And then the next line is the, is the comedy line. You are unique. Yes, that's true. And so is your financial situation. Okay. And they tend to show a couple from behind, standing, looking at a sunset or on a boat or something, and the camera angle is from behind. Why? Because from behind, you look younger. And then they ask, either explicitly or, you know, will you have enough? But what they never speak about, you have, to, you have to watch daytime TV to get this. What they never speak about is the truth. You're going to die. They just, oh, it's a beautiful, you're going to have the time of your life now. But they're not going to say, you know, there's going to be a time where your health will be declining. 
Why? It's harder to sell you products then. And it's another denial of death. And it rings out to me whenever I see these ads. I mean it. It rings out to me. Death reigns in this world. I don't know how to say his name. I read a ton of his stuff and never know. I have to hear somebody else pronounce it and then I wouldn't be able to say it. Alexis de Tocqueville. Do you know how to say that, Nicola? You must. De Tocqueville? De Tocqueville. Yeah, that guy. French guy who many years ago um, toured the United States and went back to France and said, let me tell you about those people and what they're like. And there's some really curious observations and some of them sound, you know, really European and French in the way that we would generalize and, and might be insightful and others are definitely insightful. He, he says this. This is a number of years ago. It would be even, even more so now. He said, there is in these people, quote, a strange melancholy in the midst of abundance. Why? Well, one answer would be because death reigns. We live in an age of unprecedented wealth, but the ache for meaning goes so often unrelieved. So we seek first to find it in self, my success, my reputation, my temperament or personality, or my interests. Then we seek to find it in nation or group. I am, you know, whatever background you are. Which is great. I think you should celebrate it. Celebrate your heritage and your background. But you do so only properly and appropriately when you also say, I am this, which is great, and, and I should celebrate it, but in one way I don't really care. You look so we can look for meaning in nation or group. Or the height. We can look for meaning in, in religion, which in this text and earlier in Romans, basically what's, what's uh, outlined there is if you're trying to make your way in the world of sin and death, you could basically just say, well, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to follow my appetites. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, right? Or you can say, no, 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 no. This is a pretty bad world because everybody's sinful. So what am I going to do? I'm going to take up religion. And I'm going to try to impress God or some concept of the divine. And Romans goes to great lengths to say, that's still functioning in the world of sin and death. Religion often is over there. Constructing a God according, according to your own biases and judgments. That's one of the tests, by the way. If God thinks just like you, uh-oh. Honestly, please. If God thinks just like you. I'm going to do something really carefully now. Here you are. Do you want God to think just like you? I sure don't. I know you don't want him to think just like me. We can celebrate that he doesn't. It's the height of human sin in a way, religion. Back to the David Foster Wallace quote from a number of weeks ago. I'll read it if you can't. This is the description of the world of sin and death, the world of Adam. And this is not from a Christian writer. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing off or start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally actually grieve you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of, forms of worship is that they are unconscious. Their default settings. It's the words, pretty much everything else will eat you alive. The way of sin and death reign, and we can notice it every single day. There is no discovery of There is no discovery of one's being in Christ without recognizing one's having been in Adam. Likewise, there's no recognition of one's having been in Adam without their assurance of being in Christ. So you see how you need both. It's it's a tension that moves. The other world, we'll speak about it briefly today and open it up more. The other world, the real world, the way things really are, is that Jesus Christ is, thanks be to God, not like God. Adam. He didn't bring sin and trespass. Humanity brought sin and death and from Jesus Christ came righteousness and life. How much more the text says. How much more the gift than the trespass. It isn't this. It isn't I can't even do it. How much more the gift than the trespass. So if you live a Christian life that is uh, preoccupied with sin and behavior management, you to some level are forgetting that how much more have we been called to. This is the motivation and engine of our faith. Not, I'm going to do everything desperately to try to make it in this world. How much more Christ than Adam? How much more grace than sin? How much more? The math, as I said, doesn't work out. By Adam, the sin of one came judgment. So one equals one, okay? By many sin, now all of us is human sinning, so millions and millions and billions and billions, came what? Millions and millions and millions, billions of of units of judgment. But what the text says here is, by one came this one, by many, no, 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 came here, and it's not a result of the sin, but here's what God did. Here came Jesus Christ with life and righteousness. It's a totally different math. I have never seen anything like this before. The accumulated sin of all the ages, and we get Jesus Christ, our Lord, who takes on all the sin and brings us into relationship with God. Christ over all. This is our faith in our life, the how much more. What will defeat this? What will defeat this world? Sin? Can sin defeat this? The answer is no. But if you don't see this world, believe it, as I would say, become awakened to conversion, then you will continue to live your life in this world. But this is so much more. The end of the text, where sin increased, Paul answers this question that I just asked directly. Where sin increased, grace abounded. Math doesn't work. There's always more to this Christian life. This is more than the opposite of the law of death. Our, our day, whether we define it as good or bad, our struggle, 
our sin, our human frailty and hatred, our suffering, even our death. You know the words, in Jesus Christ, death has lost its sting. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian is called to nothing. Or the Christian is never called to anything but hope. The Christian faith is a positive faith. I want you to have a positive sense of faith. I picture the foyer, okay? And I'll close with this because I'm going to be late for that other service, but oh well. The, the Christian faith is, is a positive faith. Here's how you can picture it, okay? You, some of you enter through here and come through here, but not really. Most of you go through the foyer. Think of that as kind of a little holding place, an in-between space, a space between, where you go, and I'm not trying to characterize like we're against the world. I'm not saying that. But in, in the language of this text, where you come from a world of sin and death and judgment, right, where it's, everybody's judging everybody else, You come from that world, and as you enter this space, you're going to enter the world of how much more. And you walk through that space to get here. So every Sunday when you come through there, whether it's like five minutes after 11 or 10 minutes to 11, it should be 10 to. Anyway, uh, when you come through that space, you think of that space as, oh yeah, I needed this. Because if I didn't come into this space, I might not ever be reminded of the way things really are. And walking around, here's what happens. I can say this from my faith. Here's what happens when you begin to realize the how much more. I'll put it this way. Everything reminds you of Jesus. Everything. Everything begins to remind you of the how much more. Even the negatives. Sometimes, especially the negatives. A famous poet put it this way. Gerard Manley Hopkins. I won't read the whole poem. He talks about all nature catching fire for God. He says, Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. To the Father, through the features of men's faces. We are in the presence of the God of all salvation. And our blessing is that I can see the salvation and love of Jesus Christ. Lovely in your eyes. Eyes not his. Christ plays in 10,000 places. When you begin to see the how much more, everything reminds you of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says, you know the words, in this world you will have trouble. Praise God. Just that is enough for some people because you think you're not supposed to have trouble because the mutual fund ad didn't tell you you'd have trouble. (laughs) Told you you'd have a great vacation. For however many years. And Jesus said, not a good salesman, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Let's pray. Father God, bless us in this time to have eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.